since its founding more than 20 years ago, Campbell University Divinity School has been guided by a unique six-word mission statement, Christ-centered, Bible-based, ministry-focused. That mission statement captures our distinct integration of academic rigor, spiritual formation, and practical application. It lays the foundation for an unusual strong sense of community among a very diverse student body, drawn from many different denominations, ethnic backgrounds, age groups, along with the faculty and staff. It expresses the deep, shared commitment to our faith and willingness to engage with different points of view that characterize everything we do. We do not seek simply to inform students, rather we invite them to journey into transformation, challenging them and equipping them to develop their own understanding of what it means to be Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused. We invite you to learn more about us. Check out our degrees, concentrations, and programs. Come to one of our continuing education lectures, to Visitation Day, or to one of our regional recruiting events. Contact us to schedule an individual visit. Call one of our faculty to lead a retreat or Bible study or to wrestle with difficult issues. You can reach us online at divinity.campbell.edu. We look forward to hearing from you. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to tell you about CBF ChurchWorks. CBF ChurchWorks Conference creates a space each February for congregational ministers of education and spiritual formation to be equipped for the journey through creativity, community, and worship. To teach the people of God, educators need a place to be equipped, to be inspired, and to be renewed. ChurchWorks 2019 focuses on sharing the love of Christ by battling injustice, exclusion, and marginalization in our communities. Hear from unique voices of those who are bearing witness to Jesus Christ in their communities and creating a true sense of belonging to God and to one another. Join our colleagues February 25th to 27th at Third Baptist Church in St. Louis, Missouri. Register now at cbf.net backslash churchwork. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's podcast is Felina Hewitts. If you don't know her from her writing, then you might know her from her work in social justice or in the new Friar movement, or maybe you've attended one of her retreats, or maybe you were instructed by her to enter into the eagle pose during a yoga class. Now, Felina, thank you for joining the conversation. Mm, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Andy. All right. So I thought I had a lot of things on my resume doing bi-professional ministry when I was a church starter. Namely, I worked at a local fitness club, uh, at the graveyard shift, I sold insurance, and I even made one day's wage as a morgue assistant. But you destroy my resume with all the multiplicity of things that you do. So tell us about your journey and what's led you to do all these wonderful works. Oh, wow. That's a really kind introduction. Thank you. Um, you know, it's interesting because I, I guess I do have a lot uh, going on or have had a lot going on in terms of my, my work. But in, for me, it just kind of all blends together. Um, and I, I did get involved in an international mission. It was a, a budding organization that was working among the most vulnerable of the world's poor with HIV and AIDS. That was at the a peak of that pandemic uh, in that part of the world, there was still a lot that was unknown about the disease. And so 
children were abandoned uh, at hospitals and on roadsides and at beaches um, who were infected with HIV. And so we had started a children's home to help care for these, uh, these vulnerable ones. And then uh, it wasn't long before our founding director uh, resigned rather suddenly. And um, there were just a few North Americans involved, and we had quite a few South Indians working with us. Um, but the board uh, in the States invited my husband Chris and I to return to the States and oversee the, the organization. And so that really shifted our, um, our work from kind of grassroots community organizing and responding to people in poverty to overseeing this organization to make sure that the children had their needs met um, for these two children's homes that had been started at that point. Along the way, it wasn't long before a lot of um, post-university young people um, really wanted to get involved in what we were doing. And so within about eight years, uh, the work expanded to uh, 13 cities in the majority world, working with children with HIV and AIDS, former child soldiers, uh, war brides, children living on the streets, and um, survivors of trafficking, uh, both sex and labor trafficking. And so um, we had a pretty intense life uh, going, kind of overseeing this uh, worldwide movement uh, to respond to people in poverty. And so the social justice part of my work um, was really um, the formation of my adulthood. And um, was, I see myself as having grown up a lot during that, during that work. Uh, as that work continued, and, I, and maybe we can pause here in a few moments and see what would be most interesting to explore, but as that work continued, um, I experienced a crisis of faith and I'd grown up in the Protestant Evangelical Church and found that uh, the spiritual formation I had received really didn't prepare me to deal with uh, human suffering and brutality and uh, various paradoxes and contradictions uh, of life. And uh, I found my, my, my spiritual life uh, extremely challenged uh, to deal with the suffering of the world. And, and um, it wasn't long after that that I met a Cistercian monk named Thomas Keating, who introduced my husband and me to the Christian contemplative tradition and the practice of meditation called centering prayer. And, and this really um, was pivotal for me um, and turned me on to the need to integrate contemplation with action. And in my particular vocation, that, that meant social justice work. So integrating contemplative spirituality with social justice. And so uh, life continued to unfold uh, with, with that work. And, uh, and then it became evident around 20, I think it was 2012, yeah, that um, my husband and I decided to transition full time to helping people integrate contemplation with action in whatever form act, the active life takes in one's life. And so we started Gravity, a center for contemplative activism in 2012 and now um, have been doing that work for almost seven years now uh, focusing on spiritual direction giving contemplative retreats and um, doing Enneagram work uh, private consultations and then uh, public workshops 
Well, let's go back to this, this experience you had. Um, you know, I can imagine just hearing you share it, that there is a, a you know, as you said, a crisis of faith, but a tremendous uh, reshaping of your worldview in, in the kingdom of God. Do you mind kind of taking us mm-hmm. into that experience? Mm, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll try. Yeah. I, um, I grew up actually as a um, pastor's daughter, uh, going, going to church, um, you know, at least three times a week and grew up being taught that, you know, God is good and God blesses those who love God. And, um, there was a sense in which, um, you know, God was just and, um, and let's see, how else is my worldview at that point? Yeah, there was just a sense in which God works on behalf of, of the people and um, provides and takes care of um, people in need. And growing up in middle of America, struggling middle-class family, you know, we had our difficulties and, and struggles. And, um, you know, I was formed to invite God into those. And, and generally you know, things kind of worked out for us and for our family and the small community that I was a part of growing up. But when I um, got into the world and um, started to realize the extent of suffering and injustice, people, you know, dying because they don't have enough to eat, tricked and forced into labor and sex trafficking who were conscripted into war either as a soldier or as a war bride, I mean, they're subjected to um, sexual violence and slavery and labor slavery, really. I mean, there's just, you know, it was really starting to get difficult to see how God was um, really present and um, providing for such extensive needs. And, um, And so this just severely challenged my my worldview and my concept of god and and honestly i think in my in my early work in global social justice there was a um there was a sense of i you know i didn't i wasn't conscious of this really but looking back i can see how i sort of was looking for someone to blame for the problems of the world and, uh, and the blame really was targeted at the affluent West and, um, you know, the, the Western church and being kind of insulated and isolated from the um, disproportionate suffering and poverty and injustice in other parts of the world. And so my, a lot of my work took the form of, you know, advocating for my friends around the world who needed support and help. And so either with someone's, you know, time and energy and giving their vocation and service or their finances in, in helping, you know, create a better world. But there's an element of someone's to blame. Like these are major problems and we got to fix them and who's responsible. But when I got to Freetown, Sierra Leone at the peak of the war over blood diamonds, uh, I had this really incredible visit um, in sort of 48 hours. I was introduced to young girls who had been conscripted into the war as war brides, and they described the horrific violence committed against their family members. And um, maybe I won't go into all those details now, but 
uh, as they were describing um, these soldiers who had done, you know, horrible things to them, I found myself, you know, really focusing my blame on the soldiers for what had happened to these girls. You know, someone had done this to them, someone was responsible, and therefore someone was to blame. Uh, so I, I had this um, image of these soldiers and how horrific they were. And, and the next day, to my surprise, our, our host brought us to a camp for young soldiers who'd recently been disarmed, they had just come off the battlefield, and they were not so different from the young girls I met the day before. I mean, children as young as five, um, all the way up to maybe 21, uh, young boys in you know rags really um, who had suffered in incredible violence against their family and themselves and they uh, you know wanted to tell their story about how they were given guns that were too heavy for them to carry and drugs to help them commit atrocities and eventually were given young girls uh, to do whatever they wanted with and so as I met with these young boys, it was like, now not so easy to demonize them. Like they were also human and they had also suffered. And as I began to unravel this extreme situation of injustice and, and human suffering and brutality, I realized that, um, you know, the cycle of a victim and oppressor just kind of keeps going. And so it's like, okay, well, I could focus my blame on the on the guerrillas and the government soldiers who you know were responsible for the war and they were taking young soldiers you know into their ranks and you know but then well they're also um, victimized like they're um, victims of a system that values a mineral that becomes a diamond and and then you look, look into the affluent you know western um, countries that that put a value on those diamonds. And, and so it just goes on and on and on, you know? And it's like, I found myself just kind of at a loss, like this way of functioning in the world, looking for someone to blame um, has its limits. And so if we're just all sort of victims victimizing one another, then I thought, mm, well, if you know God created us, then God must be to blame. And so that, that blame system, um, just continued and now it was directed toward God and this is how my my worldview was impacted and my spiritual paradigms began to crumble. You know it's fascinating for me to hear you talk about um, that that awakening that takes place when you experience the world outside of the norm and you know I've experienced this in my life and I friends of mine that are clergy that also go through this process we come to this this awakening and not to sound self-righteous but we often forget about the experience and the process that brought us through to get to this new understanding. And then we get so frustrated with others. They don't see the world and the application of the gospel in the same way we do. Yeah. But what I've, what I hear you saying is, is something of, of coming through that process. So, so how do we, how do we turn the desire to, to blame someone and, mm -hmm. and to forget that others aren't afforded the same opportunity to go through the process we did? How do we, how do we turn that into positive grace-centered transformation into mm. others' lives? Mm -hmm. Great question. Yeah, I, I understand you know, where you're coming from and just the, the impatience that can set in once we've 
progress to a new understanding or worldview, wanting others to come along with us and maybe they're not there and stuff. But, um, well, the way that it worked out for me was, um, it was at this point of crisis of faith that I, um, I, I found that the practices, the spiritual practices that had sustained me were really falling short and I wasn't able to pray like I used to. Um, I, the church services I was going to didn't, didn't really, um, meet, uh, the bigger questions that I was asking. And so the, the practice of, of going to church services was really falling short and I was struggling. I was really struggling, you know, to connect with God in the midst of this crumbling, um, paradigm and, uh, yeah. And just, yeah, just really struggling. So the way that transformation really set in for me was the gift of, of contemplative prayer because here I found a way to pray beyond words that helped me stay connected to the divine and that in a way that could help me uh, transition from what I had known and that was now crumbling into what I didn't know but needed to sort of be more established in and over time, what that meant was um, there was this incredible inner healing that began to take place in ways that I didn't even know I needed it. And then um, the fruit of that was really a capacity to, um, to hold both and, to hold both, um, you know, my struggles with God or other people or systems or structures and um, a compassion and a patience and, you know, really the fruit of the spirit uh, in Galatians that we read about, like just taking more root in me and, um, and finding a way to, to hold it all and um, to not be so like driven or compelled to take control of it and fix it, but instead in holding it, letting something new and positive and pro proactive emerge that I could cooperate with. And I really see this as, um, as a way of learning how to cooperate with the spirit in our daily life, in our relationships, in some of the bigger challenges that we face in the world, um, rather than trying to act on the world and impose our will on the world and then hope and pray that God will bless that effort or that God will be there for us as it's all unfolding. Instead, it's a very subtle shift of consciousness really um, that affects my very being so that I have a way of, of partnering and cooperating with, um, you know, it's the, it is the cheesy metaphor of like, being in the car and giving up the driver's seat and letting God do the driving, you know? This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. 
Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity. Well, the wonderful thing about your story and your journey is that um, you experience transformation through um, contemplative practices. And as you shared earlier, you and your husband uh, started Gravity, a center of contemplative activism um, in 2012. So take us into the story of its development and maybe share with us what what are your greatest hopes for Gravity? Mm. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, in the beginning, it was pretty intense. So we had been, you know, have to understand we were with this other community for nearly 20 years and we were completely devoted to it. We had never imagined that we would do anything else. Um, so our identity was, was very much wrapped up in, uh, in that part of our life, in that community, in that, that work. And <clears throat> my teacher, Thomas Keating, who I mentioned earlier, who introduced me to the Christian contemplative tradition, he has this really helpful framework for understanding human consciousness and how it relates to the process of Christian transformation. And he says that there are these three um, basic programs for happiness that we all have. And uh, they're, they're not good nor bad. They're just kind of neutral. They're hardwired our biology. And they're the, the programs for security and survival, power and control, and affection and esteem. And these uh, programs for happiness, we learn early on how to tend to those programs so that we have a sense of happiness. Um, but this is all going on rather unconsciously until we wake up to them at work um, in our life. And so um, as we were beginning to discern this call to start gravity, um, all of those programs sort of were triggered. Like suddenly, you know, we didn't have the power and control over our life and how it were, would work out. And we didn't know if gravity would work, you know, we didn't know if people would really want what we were being called to offer. Um, the security and survival, I mean, it was like, you know, we were never in um, our, our work for the money, but we had a, an established um, base of support and income. And now we were, you know, putting that on the line, putting all of that at risk, not knowing if we would have, you know, the security and the financial security moving forward. And then the affection and esteem was really challenged as, as people questioned what we were doing and didn't agree. And some of them didn't agree that couldn't support us um, in one way or another. And so everything was really on the line. We, we really risked it all. And, um, but we had, you know, the sense of grace moving us forward. And by, seeing these programs being triggered and continuing to say yes to God um, is, is really the invitation for all of us um, because this is where real freedom comes in when everything in us is screaming, um, this is too risky or I can't do that or what will people think of me? Um, you know, when God is calling us and, and really inviting our, our highest, best, truest self, to come alive and to um, be at work in the world, uh, 
we have to have this capacity to say yes when these parts of us are resisting. And so we did that, you know, we found the grace to do that and we got started and uh, <laughs> it's been an incredible ride. Like we've just been overwhelmed by the number of people who want, you know, what we're offering in terms of spiritual direction and the Enneagram work and the contemplative retreats, like the, um, the way in which my own, uh, religious paradigms were deconstructing and along the way, um, you know, I, I, I navigated through kind of a reconstruction phase. Uh, many, many, many people today are experiencing that. And, um, you know, they're really struggling to find a faith community or spiritual community that can hold them through that and support them and help guide them um, many people um, grow disillusioned with their faith and with the church when they don't have support and guidance. And so we're finding that, that the work of gravity has just really um, been timely in terms of meeting a, a need in the world. Well, you've written extensively on, on spirituality. At the end of 2017, you released uh, The Pilgrimage of the Soul, and now you have a new book out, um, Mindful Silence, The Heart of Christian Contemplation. And this work is, is an extraordinary guide through the history of contemplative practices, your personal journey, um, and an invitation for readers to move from uh, contemplation to action. Uh, you wrote, the overarching theme in Christian scripture points to prayer as a means of communion with God, which leads to personal and collective change. Contemplative prayer is a powerful means to that end. It opens us to the new way of seeing and being in the world. Take us into the journey of this book's formation. Mm. Well, it's interesting. Uh, this book was a response to uh, my readers of Pilgrimage of a Soul. Who, uh, so Pilgrimage of a Soul is more like a theological narrative or spiritual memoir. And uh, it, it, it's a very vulnerable work around my own um, deconstruction and reconstruction um, season of my, my faith and life. And so um, throughout that book, I illustrate and explain um, some of contemplative spirituality and contemplative practice. But then, um, Inevitably, a lot of my readers are like, wow, this is amazing. This is incredibly helpful. But what is this contemplative spirituality? And where did this come from? And why have I not heard about this in my local church? And so the book um, was a response to that kind of question. Um, Christians who are growing and evolving and wanting to understand uh, the contemplative dimension of the faith. And so the book um, is, again, just the way that I write. I just tend to be a, an open book that way. And I'm, so it's a very vulnerable work. I, I share um, uh, very freely about my own experiences in, um, you know, in contemplative spirituality or on the contemplative path. But what I do is um, I, I bring into the, into the work in each chapter a particular theme of contemplative spirituality, like withdrawing to engage, finding liberation by discernment, discovering darkness as light, um, exploring a deep well, dying for life, unknowing to know, these kinds of themes. And they introduce in each chapter uh, a particular teacher in the Christian contemplative tradition 
So helping the reader really root contemplative spirituality in the historic Christian faith tradition and, and then offer a, a particular contemplative practice that readers can ex, um, experience and begin to get their feet wet in this different way of praying and communicating with God. On your last book, and then you really carry this over here as you uh, dig deeply into the practice itself, uh, this connection of contemplation to action. Um, you wrote, through activism, we confront the toxicity in our world. Through contemplation, we confront it in ourselves. Contemplative prayer practices effectively keep us humble and honest. Humility and honesty are essential to building a just world. The more of us who commit to such practices, the more peaceful our world will be. What, what drew you to this new theological understanding of, of your spirituality and the actions of that spirituality? Mm. I might need you to rephrase the question. <laughs> um, you know, you pr- growing up in the evangelical world, and, and myself included, you know, there was there's this tremendous emphasis on this uh, personal uh, salvific experience, but oftentimes doesn't lead to action in the world. Mm. Um, but what you are drawing people to is that that deep spiritual contemplation directly leads to action, to mm-hmm. seeking justice in the world. So I wonder if you might share, you know, where that, that new understanding came from and how you see that active in your life. Mm. Yeah. Well, what comes to mind immediately is, um, is the scripture in the gospels that says that, that, um, that Jesus died for the sin of the world. And there's, Throughout scripture, uh, as we study it, we learn that there really is a, um, a sense of collective salvation. I mean, even dating back to the, the Hebrew scriptures and the story of, of the Hebrew people, um, there's a, a sense of collective salvation that I think a lot of us miss out on in our early Christian formation. And so this personal individual um, relationship with God and um, salvation, if you will, that process, it's both and. It is personal and individual, but it is also collective. And, um, you know, the Apostle Paul writes extensively on this idea of the cosmic Christ, the body of Christ. Um, We are not um, isolated from one another. Um, even if we're not fully conscious of it, we are all connected. We are all part of one body. So my, you know, individual stuff going on um, necessarily impacts the whole. And so if we use Paul's metaphor, you know, and we look at the body image, you know, if my, if my heart isn't um, functioning at its optimal condition, then the rest of my body is going to suffer. Um, If my you know, pancreas isn't functioning at its optimum, optimal condition, the rest of the body suffers. And so this is, this is more, I think, true to reality, uh, that we have to really grow up and understand our connection to the whole. And then through contemplative prayer, I think we become more aware of that and conscious of that. And, and so through our um, kind of intimate communion with God, we find ourselves more connected. We're living in that reality more readily. And then there becomes um, 
an experience of just kind of a nat, more of a natural response to, okay, so what is my responsibility to the whole? What is mine to do? This is mine to do, and this is how I will contribute to the whole. Um, again, it's kind of a subtle shift in the approach from a, a worldview that thinks, you know, everybody out there is a mess and broken and in need of salvation, and I will go and bring that to them, to um, this, this perspective that we are a mess and we are in need of salvation. And uh, to the degree that I tend to my own inner work or um, how the scriptures talk about working out my salvation with fear and trembling, the more that I tend to that, uh, the more I am available to tending to it in, in the community and the relationships and the um, different sectors of society that I, um, you know, intersect with. Well, ultimately, you know, we want people to go and purchase the book. Your publishers would be very upset if I didn't say so, but <laughs> I wonder, you know, I wonder if you take us in a little deeper, you talk a good bit about um, the false self. And as, as you talk about contemplation, you know, I, I wonder if, so much of this is we've lived in such a such a, a consumer consumeristic mentality around um, Christianity in America that we just want the the big church pastor to tell us exactly where we're supposed to stand. We want the organizations and politicians to tell us what we should and shouldn't be against. That we've gotten so lazy and inadequate in our spirituality that we've produced this. Uh, the self that we think is what Christ is calling us to, but you invite readers to enter into solitude and meditation and contemplation as a way of God bringing about this true self within us. And I wonder if you might expand on that a little bit. Mm, yeah. I mean, that's really getting to the heart of it. Uh, so um, my husband and I both talk a lot about contemplation as um, consisting of the elements of solitude, silence, and stillness. And, and this is really about interior solitude, silence, and stillness. But to cultivate the interior aspects, um, it's helpful to have a, a degree of uh, external solitude, silence, and stillness. In solitude, we develop this capacity to be more present. So we have to withdraw for certain amounts of time to develop this um, capacity to be more present to ourselves, to God, to one another. As we practice silence, we develop this capacity to, um, to really listen. Um, and again, to ourselves, to God, and to one another. And it's like we have to get quiet to, to get um, more capacity to really listen to one another. You know, if you think about it, how often um, when someone's talking, are we um, too self-absorbed to fully be present and listen to them? How often are we filtering everything they're saying through our own ideas or what we're going to be saying next? So anyway, as we practice silence, we develop greater capacity to listen. And then as we practice stillness, we develop this um, capacity really for restraint uh, and discernment so that we um, are, are not so quick to react to circumstances in life, but instead um, find this way of, of responding. It's, a, again, a subtle shift in, in a different uh, way of being in the world. So, um, so this, this aspect of, 
uh, solitude, silence, and stillness um, develops in us capacities and skills that essentially are connected to our, our truest self, which is none other than Christ living in us. You know, the hope of glory is Christ in us. And, and Paul wrote extensively about the new creation in this process of moving from the old to the new. Um, this is the invitation. I mean, this is really the gospel. This is, um, this is what Jesus was about, waking us up to our, our identity as children of God, you know, people with divine DNA that have enormous capacities um, for fruit of spirit. And as Jesus said, you know, that we would do even greater things than him. And so I think too many of us are, are asleep to our, our, our truest identity and I'm needing to really wake up to our potential and the possibility of, of how we can co-create with God in the world. I think one of the most powerful quotes from the book is um, you wrote contemplative prayer has over time given me the capacity for presence so that pure perception is possible with clarity. Then the real me is free to flow with the divine and co-creating the small segment of the world in which I inhabit. That's, that's powerful words. Mm. I guess you kind of can't agree because then. <laughs> I, know. I was like, hmm, I wonder what I should say. You know, what I'm thinking is that it's incredible when I hear other people read my, my work because it's like, oh, wow, I said that. <laughs> you know, um, one time a, a girlfriend of mine uh, was at a birthday party and uh, for me, and a number of people were um, giving little speeches, you know, words of affirmation um, for me. And my one girlfriend read something. She was like, I want to read something, you know, in honor of your birthday. And she read it. And I was like, wow, that is so amazing. You know, I was so drawn in and I was really touched by it. And then she was like, that's from Pilgrimage of a Soul. You, you wrote that, you know, it's like, oh, wow. You know, so it's, kind of cool like when we get to flow with God we just never know like what what we might be capable of you know we end up doing things that we we never could have imagined really mm. or you're just churning out some of the good works you can't remember what you wrote two years ago <laughs> I don't know about that <laughs> all right so this book has glorious reviews from the likes of Brian McLaren Jonathan Merritt Kirsten Powers and Richard Rohr uh what are your what are your greatest hopes for the book mm. I hope the book will really help people wake up to their reality, to who they really are and um, to the kind of world that we're living in. I hope that it will inspire them to take responsibility for their life and, um, and, and take up a contemplative practice to help them in that work of, of being responsible with their life. Because it's, you know, everything that I do, is really an honor of and for my uh, friends around the world that I came to know in my social justice work. It's for them that I do this, and it's my hope that those who read my work and are part of my work with Gravity, that they, they would live in such a way um, that it would benefit those who, who need it most. All right, I have to ask. So you're an author, a spiritual director, a yoga instructor, a public speaker, a retreat guide, a podcast guest. Is there anything you, you don't do? Oh, <laughs> well, I have to say, I, I see all of that work um, as kind of coming under the umbrella of spiritual direction, and it just takes different forms. 
whether it's one-on-one -on -one work or teaching a yoga class or giving a retreat or writing, that all of my work really is, is about um, supporting people in the spiritual journey. Well, I'm sure you can add something else to the resume. <laughs> I'm a proud puppy parent. How about that? Yeah, that, yeah, that, that works. That works. <laughs> Well, if you want to stay connected, uh, you can check out uh, Felina at Felina on Twitter. Of course, you can visit gravitycenter.com. And, you know, it's pretty remarkable of a name that you were able to find just your first name as a .com website. So Felina.com if you want to stay connected. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's pretty great. That's one thing that's pretty wonderful about having an unusual name. Well, Felina, thank you for inviting us to consider that there is a greater self that God has created us to be. And we might discover that through contemplation. Thank you for um, being willing to have the conversation and, and supporting others to uh, have it with us. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pens to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world.